This episode is powered by denanywhere.com, the online extension of Den Meditation. Our primary goal is to make meditation and personal growth available to all so that you truly understand and learn to love yourself, thus creating more harmony and success not only in your life, but within the world. We offer online programs, teacher trainings, retreats, free meditations, and many programs to further your growth. So go explore all the possibilities. Go to denanywhere.com now. This is super exciting. We heard you guys. Everyone always asks us, especially from the podcast, so how can I do the den even though I'm not there? I don't live close enough. I don't have the time. So now we have denanywhere.com. And you guys, that is basically like having the den whenever you need it, wherever you want. And we have free meditations, so there's no excuses, all different times so that you can put it into your practice and they are free. And we have certifications, workshops, challenges that I'll announce that we can all do together. Basically, it's anything you could want from us but can't walk through the doors. And the beauty is you can sign up for free and please do as we're constantly putting new product up there and adding things that you're going to love and I don't want you to miss anything. So go to denanywhere.com, sign up and enjoy. So tall. <laughs> you are the founder and president of the Den Meditation. Love it. He's interviewing me. <laughs> well, welcome, Ben. Welcome to Den Talks, a podcast where we chat with others about their journey of self-discovery in hopes that it inspires you on your own. Today, we get to chat with Benjamin Decker, a founding teacher of Den Meditation and many other meditation studios. Ben left a prolific career in Hollywood to dedicate his professional life to conscious activism. He's been involved in many anti-human trafficking organizations, such as Unlikely Heroes, Children of the Night, Saving Innocence, the International Justice Mission, and Together One Heart. He's also hosted many political benefits for Bernie Sanders, Tim Ryan, Marianne Williamson, and many more. On top of all of this, and how old are you? 30. He just just turned 30. (laughs) So on top of all of this, he's actually releasing his first book, Practical Meditation for Beginners, which offers a clear 10-day program for learning 10 different meditation techniques. You guys, he literally has just turned 30 years old, and he's done so much and is a total leader in the meditation space. But make sure you keep listening to the end or come back later for Ben's personal practice, which will be a five-minute loving-kindness meditation. So there's so... I mean, it always does shock me, and I remember when I first met you, you do not feel I mean I met you at 27 right right and you always felt like an old soul and like 40 years old I mean and you've done so much and you were a leader in the meditation space as it started growing in a more commercial way right so how did that even start like I want to go back 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 because I know as a child there's so many interesting things I want to talk about but I know you were always really into studying spirituality and religion and different cultures so were you just like obsessed with different books and from what age did this start? Like how were you ingesting all of this knowledge? <laughs> what a fun question. Okay. <laughs> thank you so much for having me here, Todd. This is fabulous. Um, I love teaching at the Den Meditation. I'm so you. happy to be on Den Talks. Um, so I was, I, by some karmic accident, I was born into a Mormon family, direct descendants of the founding families of the Mormon church on my father's side. And my mother was born and named karma. So I was, I was raised in a situation (laughs) where, yeah, where karma was really, it sounds almost like a joke, but her name brought the discussion of karma into the home. 
From you can always remember. From, yeah. I remember since I was a young child, people were saying, well, what does karma mean? Where did that name come from? They were saying it wrong. They were spelling it incorrectly. And I remember it was one of the very first words I learned how to spell. And Mormons do not believe in karma, do they? No, not not traditionally. There's, uh, in the Mormon church, there's sort of like the founding documents. And there's something called the Articles of Faith. And there are 13 Articles of Faith. And those really spell out like the constitution of the Mormon church. And it's really open to other cultural, spiritual beliefs. And it's very inclusive, uh, if you were to read it. Which is interesting because a lot of people don't think that necessarily about Mormonism, right? Right, definitely. And it doesn't have that experience. Honestly, being raised Mormon, you don't feel the perfected vision of the articles of faith. So is that something you felt like you were up against a lot? Like, again, going back to the original question of you were actually studying different books and religions. Right. So you're also studying your own, clearly. But were you Mm -hmm. studying it differently than how they wanted you to study it? Oh, my gosh. What a wonderful question. (laughs) Yes. Actually, there's a book called Mormon Doctrine that is out of print that was written by an early official... Um, whose name was Bruce R. McConkie. And I was <laughs> I and <like> name. <laughs> when I was in kindergarten learning how to read, I had my children's books that I was learning how to read. But that book, which is about a two-inch thick doctrinal book, was one of the books I learned how to read on. Whoa. And I was like, Mom, what does the, the millennium mean? Was someone teaching you or were you on your own teaching yourself how I, to read on I it? was learning at school the basics of the alphabet and I was coming home and reading my parents' books. And that particular book I could tell was important. And it was the official book of all the Mormon doctrine. And that was the faith that I was raised in. And so at the time... That was everything. That's all I knew. Exactly. That's what the entire world was, you know. And we had these beautiful palaces, which I later found out were temples. But we had these palaces all over the planet, and it was very magical, and it was very special, and it was our family members who had created this church, you know what I mean? So it was so... Felt very important. Oh yeah, super important. And I remember also about that time, um, this is so silly, but Hocus Pocus came out. Hocus Pocus came out, Sabrina the Teenage Witch came out. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm this Mormon kid who's, you know, when you're Mormon, you relate to the founding families in a certain way. But when you are the descendants of that, you you relate to them in a different way. And so when I hear about people talking about Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon church, he's like a relative. He's me. I think about I connect to him like a family member, like a person. And so even when people talk shit, even though he may have been a little bit of a shyster here and there, <laughs> when I think about him, I still have loving thoughts around him and pure thoughts around his original intentions, you know? And so even though I left the, the traditional Mormon fold, I consider myself to be, be related to the founding documents, the original founding purpose behind it. And so when, and by saying that, you mean the original purpose, there was a purity to it that you feel like has been lost. Right. Mm-hmm. And when did you start voicing that opinion? You know, I, I actually always felt that way, and I didn't know that it was uncommon or n- not popular to talk about until I was really about eight years old. And that was when I learned, oh, okay, so I'm seeing this a little bit differently than everyone else. I remember at age eight, when you're Mormon, that's when you get baptized. And it's a very important ritual, and you wear all white, and your father wears all white, and they bless the baptismal font, and it's a special place, and you go in, and there's a special blessing and everything. And before you go in, and your whole family's there, and it's this very big sacred moment. 
And, and that's a, such an important moment because it's akin to almost like a bar mitzvah uh, where, <laughs> where you now, first of all, big party, major big Always party, uh, but also this ritual where you're you, considered like a man. Yeah. You're considered someone who can make free will decisions and every, everything that you've done before then is totally absolved. And so in that way, Mormons do have a karmic they don't use the word karma, but they do talk about karma. So from that point on, you could be creating a version of karma. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so then you would have to go through the, you know, like the repentance process to release that accumulation of new karma. But about that time, there was there was an instance the night before I was to be baptized where we had missionaries from the church come over and we had this, you know, beautiful big prayer and we're all in a circle around the living room. And they said, well, Ben, tomorrow's the big day. You're going to be baptized. You're, you know, you're going to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. When you, turn, when you turn eight and you get baptized, any karma that you may have accumulated is absolved. And then all your decisions can potentially accumulate karma, like you were saying. But you're given a special blessing where I had 12 or so adult men from the church stand in a circle around me, put their left hand on the, on the back of the person to their left and their right hand over on my head. So they're all standing in a circle with their other hands going inwards towards you. Yeah. With their other hand and you you feel the weight of all their hands, like they're on your head. And, um, they, that's a special ritual where they give you the gift of the Holy spirit where you have where you're given a special blessing that you can always hear God's voice inside of you so that from that point on, you're not on your own with the potential of creating karma. You, God goes with you everywhere you go. And so the night before that, when I'm about to do all this whole ritual and they're telling me all about it and how I'm going to get the gift of the Holy Ghost and it's going to be this whole thing. (laughs) I'm like, okay, that's really great. I'm all for all of that. Um, So tell me more about Jesus and Mormons have this whole cosmological belief around Jesus, where Jesus is the son of the Father, and Jesus created planet Earth under the direction of the Father. Right. And so I said, okay, interesting, great. And so where did the Father come from? And they said, well, he came from another world where he was a man just like us. He was a person just like us. And he um, lived through his life and became perfected and, and achieved God status. And I was like, whoa, you didn't tell me about that, you know? And, and I was immediately completely intrigued. Um, and they, they said, and I said, okay, great. Where did that world come from? You just kept asking questions. Yeah. And, and, you know, and it didn't really work for me. And I said, where was the beginning? And they said, there was no beginning. And it didn't quite work for me. And right now that answer works better for me. How is your, like, when you went to sleep that night, were you uncomfortable? Because, like, I remember when I was young and I just started thinking about, like, infinity and death and all that stuff, which in a weird way you're asking kind of similar questions. Right. It's a weird feeling at a young age. You, you, you step into territory that you're, like, not supposed to be in yet that I don't know if you're, like, yet ready to handle. Right. And I remember just being, like, awake with, like, my eyes wide open at night and just being, like, what the fuck? Contemplating like, the it's universe. Like you just open up a question that you just shouldn't have because, like, right. now it's just a little scary that there's really no answers possibly. Mm-hmm. How, like, I mean, that was my own experience, but how did you feel? You know, um, t- two things. One, I, I learned to really enjoy that feeling. 
And <laughs> that became almost what I would intentionally create. Yeah. I, and that's actually how I fell in love with meditation was accessing that space of the unknown mm -hmm. and asking to understand it, asking God to, to teach me what I was able to understand when I could, when I was able to understand it, you know? And so I, first of all, I loved going to that place. But that night before my baptism, I was extraordinarily uncomfortable. Right. Interesting. Yeah. I was very uncomfortable because in the Mormon tradition, Joseph Smith, who I've always had a, some kind of psychic relationship to and very, very deep appreciation for his original sincerity. Um, the second president of the Mormon church is named Brigham Young. And I have a different relationship to what he did with everything after that point. Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of different things happened when Joseph Smith was assassinated. But before that, I have a deep connection to this, the place in Nauvoo where, where this all happened in Illinois. I have a deep connection to the original traditions, the original channeling of the Book of Mormon. I'm very connected to that. I kind of love that you say that because you're not here just shitting on it entire. It's not like you're like, I'm out, I'm shitting on it. It's like you actually do right. have a fondness for it. It's just... You feel like it's lost its way, right? I actually have a sadness around it because because there's such I believe that there is such a mystical spark of truth that was created at the very very beginning there because that was born out of the true sincerity of Joseph Smith's heart. What, what would you describe as that truth? I would say that the articles of faith, the thirteen articles of faith, which are equivalent to like the Bill of Rights or something. Mm -hmm. The 13 original articles of faith, there have been reinterpretations of them. There have been summaries of them that the official Mormon church puts on their website. I would say the original, not the summaries, the original articles of faith, 13 of them, if you read them and you mystically interpret them, they're totally true. Interesting. And so the, the problem comes in that we've got people, that there's a president of the, of the Mormon church who they call a prophet, who isn't, I believe, a prophet, who's not a mystic, who can't read those from the esoteric roots that they're from. Joseph Smith was a 33rd degree Freemason. He was the highest level Scottish Rite Freemason you could possibly be. And so he was in, a, in the hermetic mystical tradition of the Freemasons. And so he was speaking in Masonic occult right. esoteric code, which I know. How do you know that? Because I'm a nerd, because I'm a bookworm, <laughs> because I've... You are such a bookworm, I love You know, but that's what it was. You know, to answer all of your questions, I was a bookworm from a young age. So, okay, so age eight, you're about to get baptized, you're uncomfortable, it opened up a lot of questions for you, started questioning your own religion and what you belong to. Is that when, obviously you were seeking knowledge already, but you were seeking it within your own religion, is right. that when you began to look at other religions too? Was that the moment you started? And where did you find the information? Was it readily available to you? Did you have to seek it out? Well, um, a lot of really good questions, you know, to answer the most recent one about <laughs> did I have to seek it out? My mother had a book on her nightstand called The Art of Happiness by the Dalai Lama. Wow. And um, that book was extraordinarily influential. My mom also had Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Me yep. Venus by John Gray, which was very influential for me. Um, I, I actually remember her mentioning it in a talk she was giving at church. And so that one was one of the ones I kind of like snuck out of my parents' bookshelf and, and um, really explored. Those were really influential. But I, it wasn't even a joke. When Hocus Pocus came out and I was 
I mean, I had heard about witches and all of that, but that was really, I was in kindergarten. It was 1993. I was three years old, three to five years old. So when... <laughs> I'm just making a face of how old I am, just so the audience knows. <laughs> well, when that came out, um, I was like, wait a second. They're bad because they're using that kind of supernatural power for their own youth for their own youth and beauty and immortality. Right, it's for materialistic reasons. Right, but I recognized it as the same kind of magic that we did at church. However, at church, the magic we were doing was so that there would be no more homelessness on the planet. There would be no more sadness or depression or heartbreak or poverty on the planet. The whole Mormon notion of build temples everywhere and build church buildings everywhere and make sure everyone has their mouths fed and all that. That was ingrained very early on. This idea of like all of planet Earth is to be turned into a heavenly state where everyone has everything that they need. And so totally. I, so that's like the I, I was introduced to the dichotomy of the mystical powers in that moment. And that's how I read it. I was like, these people are bad witches because they use magic for... Now, do people in and I, do people who are Mormon, do they look at it in a mystical way as well? Or did you kind of translate this differently? You know, Joseph Smith was very mystical. He had um, a talisman, a, a Jupiter talisman. He There were a lot of records about him knowing his... Um, having his entire astrological chart read. Um, he... he People talk about how he the the word is translated. He translated the Book of Mormon mm-hmm. from these gold plates. But if you read his actual accounts of them, he's channeling. He's on the other side of a sheet with crystals over his eyes, channeling. And there's no book in front and of it's him. It's almost like so many religions, when you go back to the original stories, they all have like mysticism and magic. Right, exactly. And there's a book put out by the Mormon church. It's more scholarly, so most Mormons haven't been exposed to it. But the bookworm in the house has. It's called Mormon Early Mormonism and the Magic Worldview. Did your parents have a problem with the amount of reading you were doing? I mean, because um, I feel like <laughs> when you're trying to keep people within one faith, any faith, by the way, it's not even Mormonism, it's scary when someone becomes very knowledgeable. I remember one time, I think I was in fifth grade, uh, you know, back before cell phones, we did something called pass notes. Oh, yes. Yeah. I still have a whole basket of mine. Oh, yeah. Burn them. Oh, no way. No way. Such They're good juicy. stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, maybe I just have trauma because of the story I'm about to tell you now. Oh, okay. When I was like in fifth or sixth or seventh grade or something like that, I um, remember... That I was, I was actively looking into stuff. I liked to be dropped off at the at the mall, and I wanted to go to Walden Books. I wanted to go to that bookstore, and I wanted to like go straight to the Eastern religions, mysticism, New Age religion, Kama Sutra. <laughs> you know, I love. I was introduced. My first like pornographic introduction was Kama Sutra. So I was introduced through these books at the bookstore. I was like, I can't believe they're letting me look at this. I couldn't believe it. Smart though, actually. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it really actually like worked out for me. <laughs> I must say, you know. Uh, but the the that that process where I was checking all these books out and everything, I had friends who were mostly Christian. It was mostly a Christian community, and I was Mormon. And Mormons think well, Christians don't mesh well with Mormons. Traditional Christians say Mormons practice witchcraft, Mormons are evil, Mormons are not 
Christian. Mormons say, but we are Christian. Aw, shucks. (laughs) You know, and so I was raised in the aw, shucks, they don't like us, even though we are Christian community around all these friends who, you know, who were Baptist or whatever. And they, and I had a couple of girlfriends who's, and it was always girls. It was always like my peer females who took an interest in some kind of magic. And I, I was buying incense at, at the mall and I was selling one stick for a dollar. You, know? <laughs> you are an entrepreneur. I and, love it. And I remember writing notes back and forth with this girl about Wicca. And I was explaining to her the difference between Wicca, which was created in the 60s, and um, like the old religion or paganism or the pre-religion thing that Wicca is based on. That the Christians throughout the Crusades it's called grade witchcraft. You said fifth or sixth yeah, okay. amazing. And my mom doing the laundry. I'll never forget the look she gave me. Oh, geez, sorry, mom. She <laughs> was doing the laundry and she took a note out and she was like, she like yelled for me and I came to the laundry room and she showed it to me and she was like, "What is this? What is this Wicca? What is this?" And did she know what it was? She she knew, yeah. And and I said. Um, uh, uh, th- these kids at school were talking about it and I was telling them that it, it was bad. <laughs> and my mom was like, the way this girl is talking to you in this note is as if you profess some kind of knowledge about Wicca. Those are her exact words. Oh my God. And I was like, oh shit. I thought I was going to be burned at the fucking stake. Isn't that amazing? It was. <laughs> it's like the other things people were getting in trouble for and this is what you'd be getting in trouble for. Totally. And so, so to answer your question, I did have to... Um, I did have a a hard time with like censorship in the earlier part of my journey. Preteen, I had a course in miracles that I got when I was about 10 years old. And um, even that book that got removed along with my, my, the Wicca books. And by like remove, like you'd come home one day and couldn't find it. Yeah, like I came home one day and the door was off the hinges of my bedroom <laughs> and all my CDs were taken out. I have to remember out. this move as a parent. <laughs> yeah, all, all, this, all my CDs. I had a Britney Spears cardboard cutout that my grandma had given me because they had it at McDonald's and she like took it from McDonald's and, <laughs> and I really liked Britney Spears at the time. And so I had a Britney Spears cardboard cutout that was taken out. All my, all my spell books, not all of them were spell books, but some of them were. Um, and some were just astrology or Chinese astrology. That all my little stash of interesting books were taken out, and all my musical CDs. It was was it spoken about? No, no. I came home and and it was like cleaned out. That's so fascinating. So when did you start getting the desire to leave? Like when did it start becoming a reality that you were not going to stay? When I was 12 years old, I was initiated into the the masculine vein of the Mormon tradition, which is the priesthood. And so I was initiated at 12 to, to be the first level of the priesthood, which is a deacon. And um, in that whole ritual, you have to like not have sex, not masturbate, not do any kind of drugs, be nice to your family, and all that kind of stuff for several weeks before you um, actually get the opportunity to have the whole initiation and the whole process. Um, and there's a lineage when you when you're given the priesthood. There's a there's a lineage of who gave you that priesthood. My grandfather, my mom's father, Karma's father, Philip, was in town. And so by chance, by karmic chance, he was the one that, <laughs> gave it to you. yeah, whereas all of my other brothers my, are in my father's spiritual lineage. So do they blame that? 
<laughs> oh like, man, God damn they, karma's they probably should. They're like, oh, he was, you know, and he was a Freemason also, and he had some other interesting things, which I didn't actually even know about until after he died. But the um, when I was twelve and I was being initiated into the priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood is what it's called, the priesthood of Aaron, and um, and I began bl- passing the sacrament. Um, I st- I started to f- see how the other kids and how even the leadership didn't know what they were doing when we were performing these rituals and we were blessing this sacrament and we were passing it around. And the people in the audience, the congregation, they didn't know what we were doing. And then, and so that started to really make me feel unsafe. And then when I was about 14, I was initiated into the second level. Um, And you get a prophecy about your life. You get a page and a half prophecy that's literally channeled. We went to this crazy old mansion that was part of the Underground Railroad. We go in there and this man and his wife are like, welcome. And he's the patriarch of the community, and I've never met him. And he, but he knew he owned all the bakeries in town. He like was like super wealthy. So what did he say? What was your prophecy? That I would have a very special role in the building of the kingdom of God. That I have, I have spiritual gifts that I already know about that are sacred and shouldn't be spoken of. That I am gonna affect so many people's lives. That I'm gonna be. That I understand things. And it was beautiful. It was it was totally beautiful. And I still look back at that as a really beautiful moment you know yeah but about that time i was initiated into the second level of that priesthood which i went from being a deacon to a teacher and in that second level of initiation lots of studying required um and that's when you can you have administering of angels that's when you can speak to angels and you can ask angels to help with certain things Um, and it's also when you bless the sacrament before i could only pass it now i could actually bless it and I remember when I was doing it, it was the magic was happening. And when I was doing it, I was like, I'm feeling it. The magic is lit. And even when I was doing it, I was noticing that when I blessed it, I, I, I encountered that moment differently. And the community encountered it differently. And I remember feeling like, wait, so I just did something. And there was a piece that came through the space that doesn't happen when everyone says those words. Because it's a rote prayer. It's the right. same blessing every time. And so that made me feel even less secure and really, really confused. And so at that time, that's when I was really going, going hard with astrology and learned a lot about reincarnation at that time um, and really took a Zen Buddhist turn right Fascinating. then. Mm-hmm. And then at age 16, I became a priest, which was the, the next level of initiation. And about that time, I was like, I'm not that's doing not the me. next one. I'm not going to the next level. And then when it, and didn't you have to physically leave? Because you can't say no and stay in the community, right. correct? I had like to, you have to leave. I had to leave the home, yeah. So you left at 16, I, 17? No, I left. Um, I had, uh, I, I graduated high school. I left at 18, but it was really hard. And well, I was going to say, so you're leaving your home not because you're like, I'm going to college. It's like because you're leaving what everyone believes. And, right. I mean, were your parents... Did you feel like you weren't part of the family anymore? Like, how severe was it? We tried to normalize it as much as possible. Um, and my mother um, really worked very hard to keep me in the family. And, you know, she, I wouldn't say, she has a different kind of energy. Her mom uh, wasn't raised Mormon. And her mom taught me how to read cards when I was a kid. She would play solitaire and she taught me a little secret. 
she was like, I'm not really playing solitaire. <laughs> and she was like, look at the card that I just dropped. She was like, what is the six of hearts? And she would ask me, what does the six mean? So she would just start teaching you symbolism and mm -hmm. wow. And um, she would play solitaire and at her funeral, everyone's making solitaire jokes. But she taught me when I was a kid when how to was, read the cards when she was playing. So solitaire. she saw something in you too. She knew you yeah. were different. And so for me, I've I've had uh, of course a wonderful connection to my dad's family and and all of and my and my father and everything and everyone in my family is is warm now. We had to go through a journey. There. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, but the the experience of I I actually embodied some kind of experience of like religious persecution is what I experienced it as from from the inside, but I know that that's not how my family experienced it. They experienced me being rebellious. Right. And, and that's all that they could see. Which is amazing it. that you can see their point of view too. Yeah. I mean, so when did you, so now you're like on your own, did you leave, did you come right to LA at that point or did you? Yeah, I basically did. did. Was yeah. with anybody or solo and you didn't know anyone? Completely solo. You know, I, I, my parents said I had graduated high school. I was involved with like this, uh, I was w doing all different kinds of work. I was working at this place. I was, I had this modeling agent. I was taking acting classes. I was trying to become a star. You, see? <laughs> you, you are know? a star. And, uh, and my brothers, my two older brothers went to BYU. Um, they went Brigham to, Young, just so people. Yeah, Brigham Young University, and they went to the Idaho campus. So a lot of people don't know. There's like five campuses in different states. They went to the Idaho campus, and I decided to go with my my brothers. And I went with them. Couldn't bring myself to register for classes there. Couldn't do it. I was so depressed there. I couldn't get out of bed. I was more depressed than I had ever been in my entire life, decompressing from leaving the family. And one day, I I told my brother, I said, "Hey, I'm moving to LA this weekend." And you just did. And I just did. And is that the freest you've ever felt? <laughs> you know, I feel... Where were you lost and I not feel, having... I feel free now. I feel free now more than I ever but have. But that's actually interesting because you're 30. Right. And I find the 20s, regardless, and you've had quite a journey, but the 20s are very emotionally tumultuous for most people just because yes. they're trying to figure out like who am Definitely. I what's my identity like I think I'm this person but now I'm really learning I'm this person you know you're just and I always say the 30s are great because you actually really get to start practicing all the things you learned in your 20s oh yeah um, so for you you're coming from so many things you're striving to figure out who you are but you're doing it in a very specific you know system so and then you're out on your own with like mm -hmm. very little guidance so how lost did you feel? How did you start figuring out who you were? Like when did meditation come into play and in mm -hmm. all of this? And one of the big questions I have for you actually is not that I just didn't ask you a million in a row. Um, you've done so much in your twenties and I always wanted to know like, how is that balance for you of someone who's a teacher, someone who is, has a thirst for knowledge, but yet you still like to go out. You like to have fun. You like right. to party a little bit. Like, how do you make that balance and how do you fit in with other people within that balance? Well, the twenties were a really challenging time because I did feel abandoned mm -hmm. by my family. I, and I, and it wasn't just abandoned. I felt like they were incapable of understanding what was happening. And that was really hard because I actually felt like God was telling me, no, this is you and me. And I did have experiences, very mystical experiences and very normal human experiences where I felt like there was a dark presence pulling me. Like there was, you know, there's the quintessential dark path on the light path, you yep. know? 
And um, I did have, I felt a war over my life for me in my incarnation. I believe we all go through that. Absolutely. And I felt it throughout the 20s. I felt like the battle between the two sides. Now, how did you balance that with the fact that through your 20s is when you became a meditation teacher, started teaching these practices. And look, I think anyone who's teaching practice is also going through their own shit. I mean, that's of part course, of what makes you a great teacher. I, but how, like, how, did, how did you wrangle that for yourself? Well, I um, always had a, that flame inside me that knew who I was and that always felt called to the life that I was born into, specifically, um, as I am, who I am this time around or whatever. And... Um, Throughout that whole process, I felt like I had this, um, I, I felt like I had to survive. And I felt like as much as I love parties, I've always been social and I've always loved parties and everything. I, I felt like I was, I was, I remember one specific day I was about to turn 21 and I was praying. I didn't have any money. I was sharing a studio apartment with another person. My parents, I couldn't even talk to them. I had never asked them for money. It took a long time before I ever asked them for support, years. And um, I, but they did give it to me every time I asked. So I will say that. But I had, I was about to turn 21 and I, and 20 was a really hard age to turn for me alone by myself in Los Angeles. 19 was a hard age. Right, because you didn't have any friends really either, right? You're just right, I was out here. here on my own. And also 19 is when I would have been initiated into the to the next level as an elder. And that's um, all you've ever known. So. And that's what I was supposed to do, and I was doing something else, and and my, my family really had a hard time with that, and I was getting emails from my cousins that I was devastating my family, and that I was getting unfriended on MySpace by my cousins, and and I had like this... I was like, who am I? I had this, like, who am I? What's going on? And there was not the den meditation to nope. go to, but there was the self-realization fellowship and the Dharma center and a couple other places. And I, and I, and I went to the SGI friendship center and I went through the whole Namyoho Renge Kyo thing. And I went to the transcendental meditation place and I scraped up my money together and did TM and I, and I did all their extra classes and I went to the Self-Realization Fellowship and I did their two-year program. And one day when I was so hungover from some party that I threw, <laughs> I, I remember so sick, feeling so sick and just feeling like suicidal, really. And, and I had all these like really insane suicidal thoughts. I didn't have like a plan to like go execute suicide. But I had a lot of insane suicidal thoughts and I felt a physical dark presence around me. Like I felt some kind of like a nightmare or something. And I, I just started to do this meditation that I was learning at the Self-Realization Fellowship, which was essentially just visualizing light inside my heart yeah. coming outside of me. And I just breathed through it. And, and as I started to breathe through it, I started to see the sensations I was experiencing. I started to see the insane thoughts that I was having and how they were all conflicted and they were all over the place and they were like one after another. And in that moment, I was like, I actually think I just had some kind of divine intervention. And, and you were self-aware enough to like know that that's how it felt. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And so about that time, I was trying to get out of the PR situation I was in. I was really starting to resent my clients. They were starting to resent me. My patience was wearing thin. So always what happens when you're not in the right place. Yeah. And there was a situation where I had fucking had it. And I was throwing this <laughs> party for all these hot chicks with fake tits, you know what I mean? <laughs> and I like a lot of those women and I love, you know what I mean, whatever. Like not a no judgment, but I was doing this thing that felt really superficial under the guise of doing something for some charity because they were giving away toys and it was like this whole <laughs> thing and someone some woman came in, some like playboy playmate came into this event and she said they asked for a donation at the door and she said Oh, I, um, I, I'll donate later. I'm going to, I'm going to go in now. And she walked in and I confronted her. I went over to her and I said, I actually need you to donate. If you're going to be at this party, this alcohol was donated for people who are contributing to this. This venue was donated for people who are contributing to this. This is about the fucking children right now. I need you to go either donate $30 like the flyer said, or give me a present. (laughs) That's what I need from you. And she was like, oh my gosh, like we're at a Christmas party right now. Like you're being so intense. And I was self-aware enough to watch my anger rise. And I, and I, I remember having the moment where I said, Ben, stop. And I didn't stop. And I chose not to stop. Oh, I love it. I didn't stop. That's not what I was expecting here, but I, I didn't stop. I didn't stop. And I said, Ben, you need to stop right now. And I looked her in the face. I said, that's a fucking cunt move right there. Ooh. And I turned and I stormed off. I'm fine with that word, but not a great choice for many. (laughs) No, I mean, obviously I don't use that word. That's not what I normally do, but I wanted to, I wanted to use it to communicate where I was in that moment. And, and I turned around and everyone was like all scandaled all about it and everything. And I, and I wouldn't handle that situation this way today, but that was a major breaking point for me. I was like, look, first of all, I don't want to be that person. I always say like when you, when you act, when you're in your worst behavior, you're just in the wrong place. It's like, I always say too, like I could feel when I was in a job, I wasn't happy. And it's like, it just brought out the worst in me. Like my worst qualities because you're just fighting like your soul's purpose. It's just like in a relationship. Yeah, absolutely. If If you're in a relationship where you're, where you're fighting and you're discontent and you're, and you're like in a consistent space of not being able to hold space for another person's process. And they're feeling like you're holding space for your process is stretching too thin. It's like, take a deep breath, recalibrate, check back in with what's happening right here. Sorry for the interruption, but I have an online workshop I really want to talk to you guys about. Learn to meditate. I know a lot of you love our personal practices at the end of the episodes as it gives you a place to start and learn and how to create your own practice. So the good news is now online, go to denanywhere.com, there's Learn to Meditate Workshop. We used to do this workshop in-house all the time, and it always sold out, and people were always so thankful for it. So if you want examples of different styles and lineages so you can kind of choose what works for you, this is a great place to start. Or if you just know someone who's struggling about figuring out where to start, gift it to them. We have that option as well. So go to denanywhere.com to get started. Your favorite part of the episode, my next Den Talks live announcement. They have been going so well, so please don't miss it. This is our last one before the new year. So November 9th, we have a gratitude panel just in time for you guys before that holiday season where you're going to have to dig deep and muster up all the gratitude that you have. 
But seriously, this is a concept that pretty much every leader, teacher, anyone who works in the spiritual world kind of advises you to start with. But most of us don't fully understand the science behind it or actually how to do it or frankly, even the pitfalls behind it. So come, we have our favorites who are going to walk us through. We have Ryan Weiss coming back, Lorea Gaston, and Shannon Algio. All their episodes are available to listen to. It's going to be amazing. Go to dentalkspodcast.com ASAP and reserve your spot. Let's talk about relationships too, because you've had an interesting journey. Um, you've had such an interesting journey because when I met you, totally dating women right. out of state, in state, I mean, we would have like conversations right. you met a couple. Met a couple of yeah. them. Beautiful, right? Gorgeous. And then and then you started dating a gorgeous man, which by right. the way, great. He was lovely and amazing. My type is gorgeous. Gorgeous. It doesn't matter. <laughs> but I want to know, like for you, was that a struggle? Like is sexuality something that was just amorphous or was this like a journey for you, especially with your Mormon background? Like was right. that something that was weighing heavily on you it's as a, identity? It's a big problem in the Mormon in the Mormon world. Major um, ignorance around it, major like old paradigm thinking around it, total ignorance problem. Everyone in my family has some gay kid. Everyone of my <laughs> my aunts and uncles, someone's got a gay kid. So uh, you know, for me, I um, I had uh, sexual trauma when I was a child, and that really threw me off. I was abused by men and women, not extensively, not over a long period of time, but it threw me off um, enough to just be confused about the whole topic. Yeah, to like not feel very comfortable for a long time, and and I was sexual really early, you know, and um, with men and women, you know, and I found myself at a young age dating much older women and much older men. And, um, it, and I, I did have a, an experience about age 15 or 16 where my, my parents f- listened to my voicemails and they found out that I was talking to a guy while I had right after I had broken up with this girl that I was seeing. And, um, there it was like you would have thought that they found like a dead baby in my right. closet or something. It you was know, like the worst. Thing it was could the happen. worst thing ever. My mother looked like she was dying of grief. My my father couldn't even believe what was happening. <laughs> it was like the worst experience of my entire life. You know the way they handled it with me. And so I at that point just kind of pushed it away. I pushed it all away, and I also used it as I had already been familiar with tantra and had already been introduced to um, the Kama Sutra and and sexual energy and that kind of thing and that had already helped me a lot through processing trauma it had already like guided me in that process but my parents set me up to go to therapy at that point and they tried there there was a there's a like a corrective program in the mormon yeah, church sure. called yeah. evergreen and they <laughs> they did try to, to get me to do that and i was like i'm not fucking going to that and and I went to one meeting of it, knew half the people there, and I was like, nope, <laughs> bye. Were they aware, like, of your current? Well, are you guys together still? No, no. <laughs> but I'm were they aware that. of that relationship? Is that something you still feel like you have to hide, or is it now? You know, it um, it felt less like something I had to hide, and more like something that um, you didn't get to t- hear about that. You didn't get to be you a lost part of that, that in my life. Yeah. And it felt more like that. And, I, and I've always had people, my cousin Darcy, for example, she's always known about my... Yeah, she's great. You know, and so, exactly. So the, um, the thing is, I really didn't 
feel particularly more attracted to men. I didn't think so, at least, than women. Do you feel, I know some people talk about how until you know your sexuality, you don't really know yourself. Do you feel like that's connected as a whole with an identity, or do you think it's a separate part? I think that it's um, it's an expression of your personality and of, of who you are. It's one of, just like the kinds of foods that you eat and <laughs> um, the kinds of clothes that you wear, they're preferences, you yep. know. And um, I've had wonderful sex with men and wonderful sex with women, and I've completely fallen in love with women, and I've completely fallen in love with men. And so I have something, or a nature too, you know, one of my mentors. Yeah. She and I were just talking about how I actually can do that. My heart does that. I can fall in love. And I can fall in love with you. You know what I mean? Which is amazing because some people can't. Right. And so I have, I definitely have access to that within me. Um, and in the, throughout the journey for me, there have been wonderful women that I've fallen in love with and men that I've fallen in love with. Yeah. With my most recent relationship, um, I did access a deeper level of emotional connection to a man than I had ever experienced. Um, and it, ended up proving to be a really challenging dynamic. I mean, great, healthy, intelligent, spiritual, awesome, sexy, gorgeous person. Wonderful. Love him to death. Love him for life. Love his mom. Love his family. Love his cat. It wasn't <laughs> for uh, for dynamically not for me, even though I completely accessed this transcendental state of connection and love with that person. That's, I didn't, I didn't feel like it was a, con a healthy thing to continue. How do you feel like you use all, I mean, I, I love how honest you are with everything and it's so relatable. How does that translate into your teachings? Because you are such a great teacher and you connect with people and people really feel like they grow under your tutelage. So how do you feel like you use all this in your teachings? Um, the beginner's mind. The One of the first topics I ever learned about Zen was something called Shoshin, the beginner's mind. Uh, it's in the f first chapter of my book after the introduction. I have a chapter called how to use this book. And the first thing that I put in there is the beginner's mind. And I, um, I try to approach everything like a curious geek bookworm who wants to learn it and enjoy it. That's so great. And so when I read Alice Bailey or Manly Hall or Helena Blavatsky or, the Bible and the Bhagavad Gita and the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. I took a copy of the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali to the to the beach the other day. Which is insane. And I was like it's reading them to my reading. friends. Yeah, I was like, no, guys, listen. They're talking about omniscience here. You know, and the third book, it's the third book where you get the powers from meditation, which I think you would love to read if you haven't already read it. But I, um, I have always kept the, I've tried to keep the enthusiasm around learning and try to use my real life experiences, especially the ones that suck to talk about and use those ones because those tend to strike a little bit deeper. Look, not everyone's going to have the same sexual journey as me, but me being open about the fact something's that something's going to resonate. Yeah, something will. Yeah, exactly. This is actually a great transition to your book. So you've always been great with beginners. Why are you so attracted to like working with beginners or teaching people the benefits of meditation and how to meditate and give them all the tools? You know, I grew up with these four brothers. Later, Theo came along, number six. But <laughs> but there's five of us. I have two older brothers, two younger brothers, and we had we we all grew up in the same big beautiful house with this family and everything, and we all took such different paths, and we all in a lot of ways similar paths. All great great people. You know, I'm the only one who's not like married, making children, and everything. But the <laughs> the the 
way our psyches developed and everything, I don't know if that happened by karmic or genetic unfoldment or a combination of that plus other things. But I know for me, my exposure to certain things taught me a lot and and I could see how it impacted me and how other people weren't able to handle certain situations and how for me, I was like, no, 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 I'm going to go do me right now. I had a sense of independence that I saw other people did not have. And, um, and it was my personal spiritual practice that always gave me that my, even on like Christmas day, I remember my, my mom, we would all do presents and everything. And then everyone would be hanging out and everything. And and I remember my mom would say, Oh, Ben's going to go be by himself now. (laughs) And you would, and I would, and I would go read and I would meditate and I would pray. And I would like, and I remember another time I, I went to the park in our neighborhood. We had like this community park and I lay down on the park bench and I put my both hands in a mudra that I had seen on something. I don't even know where I first got it. I, I literally, my parents, my parents were like, yeah, you started sitting cross-legged doing that with your fingers and oming. And they have no idea where it came from. I was like four years old, wow. oming with a mudra. You I think I got calling, it from the Lion yeah. King. I don't know. Do you feel like your spirituality is your best friend? Oh yeah, definitely. It's like the most interesting thing to me. And so in, in teaching... The, the fundamental concept of that we are one, you know, in the Christian tradition, Christian, Judeo, the Judeo-Christian and Islamic traditions all have this idea that we're family, mm-hmm. right? All of God's children are family, you know. Um, in the Eastern traditions like Taoism, Hinduism, Buddhism, it's got a little bit of a different concept, which is reincarnation, that you could be me in a future life. I could be you in a past life. We're parallel lives. They all are under this umbrella of oneness. We're one. Yeah, we're all one. Yeah, there's only one of us. And so the idea of, you know, in the Judeo-Christian and Islamic traditions, those, those were traditions of parables. Those were intentionally traditions of parables. And so the idea that, that you're my sister is a parable to teach me that we're actually the same. And so that, you know, Marianne Williamson always says it like, if you go deep enough into you and deep enough into me, we're more than just the same, we're one. Yep. And so in teaching, in The Way of the Bodhisattva, a wonderful book, The 37 Practices of the Bodhisattvas, there's this concept that if someone asks you something, a bodhisattva will answer. If someone wants to learn from you, a bodhisattva will teach until that person's done learning. And so it's based on this principle that because I can see that as I look into your eyes, I'm looking into the mirror and there's only one of us here and we're all thoughts occurring in the mind of God, that anything that you're communicating to me, even if it's a need or a question or anything, it's because of something that you're mirroring to me. It's some kind of reflection that I'm supposed to be offering an answer or response or healing toward. And so when I work with beginners, I really like it because they're, it's an, it is initiating them into something, you know, in, in this book, I had so much fun because it's traditions from all over the world and it's things that people from all over the planet, this hits every continent. These. Do you know what I love about this too? And I feel like, you and I have had this conversation off mic, but you know, some people, there's different opinions on studying different lineages and practicing right. different lineages. Right. And uh, clearly, like, you have different practices from different lineages, and, you know, and that's what you're showing. How, what's your take on people studying different lineages, learning them, practicing them, and what that means towards their self-growth? I think that um, 
a committed spiritual practice um, is is important for consistent healing and develop and matur- development and maturation of like the psyche and the, and the mind. Um, and I think that you have to have an extraordinary aptitude in order to study cross-disciplinary traditions in a deep way and achieve them, achieve maximal results. You have to have, be a little bit of an anomaly to be able to do that consistently, effectively, thoroughly, deeply across the board. Um, I think that there, I know that there are basic fundamental practices that we know have certain results. And so what I've compiled are those, the things that we can practice, the things that we can do. And I've cut out all of the dogma. I don't talk about anything like that. This is the, this book is about the practice. Which is great because that's what a lot of people need and want right now. And I believe it's a really good initiation into a spiritual journey. I think that meditation studios like the den are a really great contribution to society in that we have a neutral territory where we can come together and, um, we have Christians coming here. We have Jews coming here. We have traditional Buddhists coming to these classes, you know? Yeah. Everybody should feel welcome. Yeah. And so that doesn't mean you shouldn't go be Mormon or Christian Absolutely. or Jewish. I always say that too. If something is calling you, by all means, dive deep, go right. there. But mm-hmm. for other people who are who are looking to explore or just have a practice in general, it's mm-hmm. there's you know you have to figure out what's right for your own self growth. And so, from the biggest perspective, which I believe is the future, which I believe the generation that's born today, what they they're born into a world where the den does exist, where this book does exist, they're born into a different world than we were born into. Yep. And so, the world that they're born into, I think we're gonna have more and more people who not only have the aptitude to study multiple traditions, that are gonna be drawn to it. And I believe that there's an imminent moment when the entire planet is going to have a collective reinterpretation of what religion is. I a thousand percent agree with that. I think everything's changing and evolving. So what do you feel in in a man who is so learned and studies so much? What do you think, again, the balance of information, studying versus practice and intuition? Like, mm-hmm. how does one filter all of that? Like, You just, like, named the four big ones, right? <laughs> like, those are... But I think they all kind of work together, but also fight mm-hmm. each other at the same time. Right. So how, how do you find that magic formula? Well, just like in any kind of diet and exercise routine, it, it's all going to fight each other. The whole purpose of lifting weights is is to cause micro contusions in the, in the muscle fibers and everything to, to challenge the muscle. And so if we look at it as all these different aspects of ourselves are challenging each other. Uh, so I love to study, but if I study and don't practice, I'm a hypocrite. Right. And, and it's not just the label of the hypocrite. It's the energy of a hypocrite. And it's the and it's the life of an hypocrite, and it's the beingness of a hypocrite, and that will cause psychological damage. That will create a narcissist. That'll create an egomaniac. It'll create a totally delusional, ineffective person. I've met a few of those. Oh yeah, <laughs> I think sometimes I am one of them. We yeah. all probably. You know, <laughs> I think yeah, I think if we're going to be realistic about it, but so so studying um, and. And practicing, I think I think what you mean by practice is like the ritual of meditation mm-hmm. or something like that. I think that there's, as you begin meditating and you start to practice, that's what I love about this 10 different techniques. You have these different approaches to the same kind of uh, faculties that you're exercising. And so as you go into them, you start to learn that about yourself. 
you learn what your thoughts are about that. You learn how you manage your emotions. You learn what kind of emotional state you you live in and maintain and, and condone and subject yourself to. And so when, when you're doing a real practice and you're going in deep in that practice, it's not just the practice. It's going to change how you are, you know. And so it's, it really depends on what your goal is. Uh, if, you're, if you have that part of you, which I believe you have and I believe everyone listening to this has, <laughs> if you have that part of you inside of you that believes that there's a chance that you have the possibility to achieve enlightenment in this time, even if it's a spark, even if that thought only exists For once moment, in your yeah. mind, then I believe that there is, a, there is an optimal way that you can, you can do that. And I think intuition is key. Because your intuition is not going to actually lie to you. You might lie to yourself. But if you go in deeper than the personality, deeper than the resistances, deeper than preferences, and go into that, that flame inside of you that is your, your higher self, that is your connection to God, that is the Holy Spirit inside of you, that is your intuition, your personal guidance, your, pers- your GPS, you know, whatever it is. If you go <laughs> in there and say, with an open heart... And sincerity, like a seriousness about it, and say, I need a solution to this problem. Or what should I do next? Or what do I need to do differently in order to remove this obstacle from my life? Or how can I overcome this obstacle? Two things. One, I believe studying will help you learn to ask the right questions. Interesting. And two, I believe that your intuition, if you go to your real intuition... Helps you find the answers. You, they have all... It has yeah. all the answers. The, the intuition will give you everything. It is God inside of you. And the more you're open to the idea that it is God speaking, and then it is... God will speak through those thoughts. It'll be the purest thoughts. It'll be the truest thoughts. You won't be lying to yourself that it's okay that you're eating those Sour Patch Kids. You won't be <laughs> lying to yourself that it's okay How that we just know? voted for that war or that... Or whatever other things that we're subconsciously condoning your intuition is going to say you know what sweetheart you just need to pray more right or or your intuition is going to guide you to certain books and get and that's what i'm really hoping with this is that it's a 10-day program um the idea is try these 10 different things see what works for you for 10 days yeah and at 10 days you are going to feel effects for sure oh definitely definitely clinically they say four days of meditation will will give you psychological and physiological benefits everyone go do it seriously this actually is a perfect time to go to the four U's because you have so many great tidbits and i just want to pull out more from you so this is our four U section which is four takeaways for the listener okay so quick and i know you have them Favorite book? Favorite book, The Externalization of the Hierarchy by Alice A. Bailey. Which has to say something because you guys have heard now how many books this man has read. (laughs) Yeah, it's not a quick read, but it's so extraordinary and it lays out the map for a beautified world in such a grounded intellectual kind of way. I love it. It's fabulous. An inspirational teacher for you. Inspirational teacher, Alan Watts. Love him. Type of meditation you rely on the most? I rely on... Loving kindness meditation the most. That's how I I manage my emotional self. That's how I regulate myself. Um, And I do believe in unity consciousness. I do believe that we are one. And I think that loving kindness is the quickest way to recalibrate to that. That's perfect because you're going to do one for us later. Yeah. Um, So this is actually perfect since you have your book coming out. What do you think is the most helpful tip for a beginner meditator? 
Well, like we said earlier, the beginner's mind. Um, I think that being... And what does that mean? What does the beginner's mind mean? It means being legitimately open. Like actually being actually freaking open to <laughs> Which it. Which is hard to do. Yeah, a lot harder. You know, a lot harder than, than it sounds, you know, because the idea is beginner sounds easy, sounds low level, but it's humble and it's meek and the meek shall inherit the earth, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's this idea that that I believe that that scripture that says the meek shall inherit the earth, I believe that the mystical interpretation of that would be that the the people who are actually humble, who are actually present, who actually see what's going on, humility will recognize your strengths as well as your deficiencies. Humility will recognize other people's strengths as well as their deficiencies with a non-judgmental quality to it. And so the beginner is humble. And so in that beginner's mind, the world is your oyster. There's infinite possibilities. The meek will inherit the earth. So interesting because the master is humble too. Oh, yeah. Oh, totally. I mean, the, a true master is totally humble, but the expert is not. Right. The oh, expert knows everything. The expert will tell you exactly what to do. Right. But a master is yeah. humble. Yeah, totally. I love that. Well, that's a perfect, beautiful mm-hmm. way to end. Thank you. I mean, you, you, I can't believe you just turned 30 because you've done so much, and it just excites me to see what you're going to keep doing. And you do give so much. I mean, we didn't even talk. There was so much more I wanted to talk about. We didn't even talk about all of the political activism you do and the social activism. I mean, I, I wish we could because you have put your hands everywhere and you continue to grow. And that thirst for knowledge, I think, just keeps pushing you to do amazing things for everyone. So thank you for sharing it with us. Thank you so much for having me. This episode is sponsored by denretreats.com. Take advantage of a completely immersive experience away from your home and truly go deeper than you can possibly imagine. Go to denretreats.com to see what we have coming up, both U.S. and international, and find the right retreat for you. So now we're going to go into Ben's personal practice, which is going to be a five-minute loving-kindness meditation. Okay, so we'll first begin by taking a few deep breaths allowing the body to begin to settle in. Checking in with all of the different sensations we experience in the body and the sounds and movement we hear in all directions around us now. We allow the exhale to bring with it a wave of decompression passing through every part of the body. grounding us in a relaxed stillness. Disengaging from any tension held anywhere in the body. Allowing everything to be as it is now. We disengage from the form aspect of this moment and in our mind's eye we see ourselves as we are now. We see our bodies, 
exactly as they are. We see our relationships. Our personal and professional relationships. And all the different aspects of our lives. Noticing the thoughts that come up. Accepting everything as it is now. Disengaging from the resistance to things as they are. Opening our minds to seeing things differently. Noticing the pulse of the heartbeat as it passes through every part of the body. Taking this moment now to see yourself happy, relieved, content. Innocent. Healthy. Breathing into these qualities. Breathing them deeply into every cell in the body. Embodying that quality And in our mind's eye, we see our loved ones joining us. Offering them that quality of health, happiness, contentment, and joy. Disengaging from any resistance. Allowing the exhale to bring a wave of decompression through every part of the body. Freely and effortlessly offering that quality of loving kindness to those who have cared for you deeply. Resting in this relaxed state we now bring to mind our neighbors, acquaintances, public figures, and those with whom you have difficulty. Allowing the exhale 
to bring a wave of decompression through every part of the body now. In our mind's eye, we see every face that comes to mind filled with joy, healing, wisdom, contentment, and love. I'm going to read the loving-kindness blessing from the book. We offer this now to those with whom we have difficulty, to all public figures who come to mind, to the acquaintances, neighbors, and friends, to our loved ones who have cared for us deeply, and for ourselves here and now. May your mind know truth and your heart know love. May you be free from harm and free from causing harm. May you and all your relations be strong, healthy, happy, and fulfilled for the benefit of all beings. opening our hearts and minds now to receiving and giving that quality amongst all living beings in this world and every other world. Embodying it now. With a deep breath, we gently open our eyes. Thank you for sharing this loving kindness meditation with me. Ten Talks podcast would not exist without these incredible people Nicole Rappi, Reem Edon, Hayden Fungheiser, Kim Bielik, and music by Alex Fetter. Thanks for joining us. If you haven't subscribed, please do. And also wherever you listen, please go and leave us a review. It's so greatly appreciated. It really does help us out. If you want to keep talking about all this stuff, please join our community on our secret Facebook page. Go to Facebook, search Den Talks Podcast, and join us there.